1: Of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Erica Karp. Erica is the Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone, an independent RIA based in Englewood, New Jersey, that oversees $35 billion in assets under management for a few hundred ultra high net worth households. What's unique about Erica, though, is how she and her firm are incorporating sustainable investing by utilizing their own internal ESG analysis to align ultra high net worth clients' rather sizable amount of capital with their own values. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Erica and her firm utilize environmental, social, and governance analysis to find the intersection between investments that they expect to be sustainable and to produce strong investment returns. How Erica focuses on the factors of intentionality, additionality, and measurability to ensure the impact that their investment decisions align with clients' values and objectives. And how Erica and her firm use manager due diligence discussions and their own thematic research to better identify managers that can fit with and then be held accountable to the firm's investment standards. We also talk about how Erica was inspired to begin her own firm after becoming frustrated with the relatively slow pace that her prior firm was not quickly enough recognized in this emerging shift towards sustainable investing. How Erica's confidence in her abilities was juxtaposed with the intense pressure of putting up her own capital to get launched and then having to quickly reach $25 million in AUM in 90 days to get her SEC approval for federal registration. And how Erica leveraged publishing her own proprietary ESG investing research through a monthly report and then doing corporate consulting to create a revenue stream on the side while she was launching her firm and getting her initial clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Erica shares how the realization that we all have to make decisions based on imperfect information known at the time helped her to have fewer regrets in her own life, how Erica struggled with wanting to be known as a trusted advisor while also feeling the pressure to sell herself and her services to acquire clients while she was building the firm in the early years, and why Erica believes it is so important as an advisor to focus on the work that brings us our personal joy to keep aspiring to do more of that work in order to build a better career. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Erica Carp. Welcome, Erica Carp to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, Michael.
1: I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and and talking a little bit about the just the, the world of ESG and, and impact investing. You know, the I feel like there's been a lot of just buzz and hubbub in the industry over the last couple of years around the the rise of of ESG and yeah I mean we're we're seeing it from regulators we're seeing it in the media more now we're we're seeing it within the industry we're seeing it in you know industry studies that talk about segments of consumers and more and more consumers that are interested. And I know you've both lived this journey for many years now of of building portfolios around ESG, building whole frameworks around how to design ESG portfolios. You do it in what I, I think of as a little bit of a unique environment now in a, in a family office environment where you, you get to do this with some folks who have very, very large amounts of dollars, which I know puts puts a, a couple of additional sort of tools and options on the table about how you do this. But I, I, I think to, to, to kick off, I'd, I'd love to just hear from your perspective like how do you think about and define this space of ESG and impact investing because we, we had so many advisors talk about it from different perspectives that we're not always even quite talking about the same thing. So when, when we say like ESG and impact investing, how do you define that space? what what is that exactly?
2: Well, I, I, we probably do, or I do bring a different perspective because of, you know, I was a director of investment research, right? And so the way I define, first of all, I, I don't think there's any such thing as ESG investing, right? ESG, environmental, social, and governance analysis, that's a thing, and it's a discipline and if you engage in esg analysis you can do any kind of investing you want so to to you know to use terms esg analysis a discipline sustainable investing the systematic analysis of esg factors in any investment process right and then impact investing i would define as intentional And then additional, meaning, but for your money, something societally would not happen. And then measurable. We want to be able to measure the impact. And then there's loads of other terms, socially responsible investing and double bottom line and triple bottom line and values-based investing. In the final analysis, it's all just investing. And ESG analysis is a lens. It's, again, it's a tool. And I personally think it, it needs to be done in all investing contexts. By the way, including on the, on the corporate side, the investment of, of you know, treasury dollars from corporations, their CapEx plans. So it's an analytical tool. And then you can go from there and look at a client's aspirations.
1: So it's a really interesting way to, to frame it. So it's, it's not ESG investing, it's ESG analysis. So incorporating environmental social governance factors into the analysis that just like the, the fact that you're doing that, that is the ESG component of the analysis, the mm-hmm. implementation of the portfolios as you frame it as sustainable investing, which means an investment process that has incorporated the ESG factors into the portfolios that are ultimately being constructed.
2: Right. And as it relates to ESG analysis, in 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 the financial return context now i'm not talking about the societal return but in the in financial returns we want to understand what are the material esg factors meaning which of those factors are going to affect financial outcomes profitability and economic outcomes so material i.e. what matters to revenues, to cost, to risk, and by the way, those are we think about them in a, a longer-term context. But in that longer-term context, ESG factors very often do determine big financial outcomes. Like I said, it's it's you know revenues and costs and risk. And by the way, that that kind of analysis is what matters to the SEC and all the financial regulators. But again, it is long-term. I would argue actually that ESG analysis and sustainability from a corporate perspective and from an investment perspective is a proxy uh, for quality. It's a proxy for innovation and growth and resilience. And that's why ESG analysis is critical, frankly, for every investor and for those investors and those you know advisors that really don't look at these factors you're going to miss stuff both risk and opportunity that's just a fact
1: i find that an interesting framing cuz i you know certainly there's been a lot of debate in the industry over the years of just do you get better returns with an esg framework i guess you know, from sris sort of predecessor discussion around it. So I feel like there's been two camps. One side says, this is a path to better long-term returns. And the other says, this isn't about returns. This is about clients aligning their capital with their values and what's important to them and maybe it will also happen to get better returns but you know if you know if you just don't want to invest in a certain type of company that engages in certain practices because that's don't it's where you don't want your capital to be like that's a preference unto itself and it's not even about the returns anymore so is like how do you think about that spectrum between are are we doing this for the returns or are we doing this because clients have certain preferences about where their capital goes and doesn't and we're we're, we're just trying to express those preferences in a portfolio?
2: So the answer is yes, right? It's about both and it's about both simultaneously. And the, the preponderance of empirical research shows that you need sacrifice nothing to invest for both sustainability and financial returns. You have to be skilled to do that. Right. Because there is a lot of so-called greenwashing and, you know, there's a lot of kind of
1: uh, what's say, what's greenwashing for those greenwashing
2: who aren't familiar. means um, since sustainable investing is kind of, you know, kind of a thing today. It's kind of cool. There are companies, there are advisors, there are managers that are trying to put a spin on their On their businesses, like, oh, I'm helping you know environmental and social factors, and you got to put that label out there. So, greenwashing is an effort to make it look like one is doing you know sustainable finance. So, there's a lot of that now because it's kind of a cool subject, right?
1: So, this is the manager that you know says, oh, yeah, you know, we. We build, we build ESG portfolios, and then you get in there. It's like you have a 1% allocation to an ESG fund. The other 99% is exactly. just doing what you were going to do in the first or place. You, have you, know, a, yeah. you got an ESG thing, so you said you're an ESG manager. And right, or a like, company. Mm, you're not really. <laughs>
2: yeah, or you're a company, and you do some advertising saying how energy efficient you are. And by the way, let's say your business is, you know, in finance or some service sector, like energy efficiency is not the point for you. You know, the point for you is is governance and human capital management and, you know, diversity or whatever else. And, and by the way, this goes to that issue of materiality, what matters. If you are a mining company, you know, the, the, the social interactions with your, you know, with your labor force, I mean that's what matters most if you are a beverage company or even a semiconductor company your water efficiency actually matters a lot and that that's not intuitive by the way the semiconductor company puts a you know 10 billion dollar fabrication plant somewhere where there's no water In Southern California, and if they lose water, they lose their license to operate effectively because it takes so much water to produce high-end chips, right? So what matters? What is material by sector and by company, right? If you're a hotel or travel or tourism company, you know, you want to make sure that you're looking at issues of, uh, frankly, modern-day slavery and and human trafficking because that happens more frequently in those industries, So by industry, what matters? And that's ESG analysis with regard to, again, performance. So the answer really is it depends. Some clients are totally into impact. They will go way out on, you know, the the kind of thematic impact, direct deals, private equity. They'll go way out on the scale to make sure they're getting the social impact. They may or may not care about, you know, loss of capital. Right, and then there's the other end, there's people who are you know totally focused on financial returns and are not looking at ESG factors. Now, again, I think it's a mistake because ultimately, in the long term, I do think there's excess exposure to risk if you don't look at the relevant ESG factors.
1: So, for those clients that I guess as as we're framing, like they're they're doing it for the values, not necessarily the returns. Mm-hmm. Would you so, think of that as just another version of sustainable investing and incorporating? ESG analysis would you put those folks in the in the domain of impact investing because they're you know they're they're saying their investments based on impact and not necessarily driven by financial return like how do you how do you describe that values based values preference driven investor that's that's also incorporating some types of ESG analysis
2: you know again we could say impact investing but remember we talked about you know intentionality additionality and measurability. Those are the the three kind of things that what we would call an impact investor is looking for. Right. But Can can you
1: define those three? Just like what, what do those mean in practice?
2: Sure. Intentional. Right. So my issue is um, the ocean. Right. So I really, really want to put my money to work to help create a healthy ocean. Right. So that's the intention for me. Or, you know, pick anything else. Pick water, pick uh, racial justice, you know, equity, social justice, pick, you know, just pure climate issues. Right. So that's one intentionality. Second, additionality. Let's say your investment, you know, again, let's say it's the oceans. Remember that the ocean supports about 12% of the, the jobs of the human race, right? So making your living off the ocean is a really big deal, all right? About 50 or 60% of the human race gets its protein from the oceans, right? So the ocean matters. So when we're talking about additionality, you know, when you make an investment, we would not have, call it more jobs, more proteins. We would not have the establishment of Ocean research facilities, like right now, there's there's this really cool facility called Proteus, which is like it's the space station of the ocean, and it's being driven by Fabian Cousteau. Right? It's going to be impact investors that get involved with this. So that's the additionality part. And then again, there's the measurability. So uh, uh, you know, back to that intentionality. How many jobs can I create? Can uh, can my dollars help create? around ocean health, right? How can we start to see, you know, this huge mass of plastics that's invading our oceans. How can I help affect that? That's a big one, by the way. We need huge efforts to do that. But again, you can start to have metrics in place to say what your money is doing. And I, you know, I, I personally like the ocean is a big one for me. And if you look at the ocean in, in 2050 you're going to see more plastics in the ocean than fish, right? It's really, really bad. So that's an example of impact investing. And again, by the way, I'm using this because it's a hard one. There's more clear ways to invest in, you know, racial equity and climate impact and, you know, health impact. The ocean is a tough one.
1: So I've heard at least some some circles define impact investing as something that is sort of non-traditional assets, non-traditional portfolios, often very locally based or small business based Mm -hmm. and, and as sort of like a defining characteristic, and I, I, I feel like your definition of how you're framing impact investing here is is different. It it's larger and broader in some ways. It 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 may or may not still include some traditional investments or portfolio portfolio assets, that it's primarily defined around first, just the client's intentionality in building the portfolio, right? Just when they're saying, I'm not building the portfolio for returns, first and foremost, I'm building for impact into whatever my impact thing is, it needs to be measurable, or just it's probably good practice to be able to say, like, here's the impact you're having when you put your dollars towards impact. And that as you're framing, like it it does need to be something, there does need to be some additionality, we have to be creating something New and different because that's what causes the impact, which may lead you in a direction of some new or different or non-traditional investments. That it's it like it's not defined by different direct deals or private equity and the like. That just happens to be one of the ways that it gets expressed by the time you meet the factors of intentionality, additionality, and measurability. Like, am I am I framing that well? In,
2: yeah. Yeah. No, that's, in that's
1: what impact is, or yeah. and, and how you well, define it.
2: You're right. I do define it much more broadly. In fact, I believe that every investment, every investment has an impact. The question is, do you know what it is and is it good or bad, right? But every investment has impact. And I, you know, I believe we have to move, you know, the whole capital markets, infrastructure and all the dollars towards impact in some way all right? So I'm going to give you an example for just for context, all right? In the last couple of years, about $500 billion a year was put into alternative energies. You know, $500 billion, that's pretty good. If we wanted to get anywhere near the goals of the Paris Agreement, all right, for energy, for, for carbon emission reductions, we would have to invest about $1.5 trillion a year. All right. So we're spending like a third of what we need to spend to really get climate action, to really start bringing down emissions or growing them less rapidly. All right. So we need to move, you know, it's not millions and it's not billions. We need to move trillions towards all kinds of impact. And so if we think that it's going to be kind of one subgroup of investors, like impact investors, that are going to get that done. I mean, we're wrong, right? We need to move the quantum of capital. And so, it, you know, the reality is if we can get everyone and everything moving towards investing in renewables and investing in protecting the, the ocean and the water and, frankly, society, we need to move it all. And so, yes, I define it very broadly because actually, let me give you an example. You know, I use that word quantum, which is really, it's a cool word because people think of it as very large, like a quantum leap. But the reality is quantum is also very small, right? Like it's the infinite divisibility of something, you know, quantum computing. Right. And so I will take quantum computing, which is a huge theme, trend, technological kind of shift that you wouldn't think, you know, impact investors should have anything to do with. But we do, because when you think of what quantum computing does, because knowing what it is, is, is really hard, like Einstein had trouble with it. But knowing what quantum computing can do, which is, again, infinitely fast simultaneous processing, think about what that is going to affect the logistics of airlines and trains and and city traffic. It's a huge amount of processing power allowing us to analyze stuff simultaneously. And it's gonna be incredible for carbon emission reduction when we optimize routing, right? So that's just one example. So quantum computing has a huge impact on climate because it has a huge impact on emissions. So I don't think most investors think about that, but it's true. Go ahead and invest in quantum computing. It's tricky, but it's doable. And that is a big thing that I, I don't think is perceived as being uh, you know, an ESG analyzable thing.
1: It is. Well, and I'm, I'm struck by your, your point and comment overall that you know, every, every investment has an impact. The, the question is just whether you know what that impact is and, and whether it's influencing your investment decision in the, in the first place. I've been fascinated with the rise of some of the the ESG tools, and oh and I guess in this context, kind of impact investing tools that have started trying to help quantify this a little bit more you know if if you're if you make this investment versus that investment you know here's the jobs created or the you know amount of carbon emissions that are reduced or the amount of plastics in the ocean that are reduced and like just it it starts to put numbers to investment decisions Beyond just the return numbers, right? Just like it, it puts different numbers on the table, and I suppose to some extent we all weigh the additional numbers differently, right? Some some people, I guess, would be I'll call them investment purists, like the only number that matters is the return number. If you want to do good in the world, take your returns and you know donate them or be charitable or whatever you're going to do with it. But I'm I'm here to maximize your returns, and and then you get clients at the other end of the spectrum that say, no, 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 the the other numbers are actually so much more important than the return numbers that I actually want to invest for the other numbers first and foremost. So we're we're calling those impact investing folks. But but the like the fundamental change to me is for most of investment history, if like we didn't have any other numbers to measure by. I mean, the only one was returns or the, you know, the the derivative numbers we have tied to returns, like risk and standard deviation, semi-deviation, and all the different all the different metrics around around returns, but I'm just one of the things that strikes me from the whole discussion is we like, we've brought different measuring sticks to the table over just the past couple of years. I think aided in part by technology that's figuring out how to harness these numbers and and pull large data sources to get these numbers and and put them in front of us. And and just the fact that we get to look and measure more things than we did before seems to me to be the fundamental thing that's starting to change this.
2: I mean, yes, definitely. So there are loads of tools out there, but you're actually starting to see a a consolidation of those tools a bit. But let me go back to a basic issue, which has to do with the quality of data, right? So a lot of the ESG analysis that's done relies on data that is, is quite flawed. And that's because it has to do with corporate data disclosure. Uh, material ESG factors. Now, it's, it's thankfully now, this is after kind of, you know, 20 and then 10 years, we are starting to see some standards for disclosure, for corporate disclosure of ESG data that is material, but there has not been any standards. So companies can, you know, put out data as they define it, as they need and want it, and it is not comparable and it's you can't base projections on it and it, there's no you know governance or auditing of it and it, you know it's it's challenging those data standards now there's some companies that are kind of leading the way which is great they try really hard to disclose you know what matters to them in terms of ESG and materiality but There haven't been standards for disclosure. It's coming now, which is exciting. Ten years ago, I was on the the founding board of something called the SASB. For those of you that don't know it, that's the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. And the idea was very much to have standard sector-based disclosures by companies right, that that again, are decision useful for investors. So finally, we're starting to see that happen still very slowly because it's, it's complicated and you're seeing consolidation between the SASB and some of the European standards and now global standards. So we will have, we're getting closer to having these standards for disclosure. But in the meantime, You have this data out there, and then you have these ratings and rankings organizations that look at the data and put their own kind of spin into it. And then you have indices that are based off ratings and rankings, and then you have these ETFs and other funds that are rated off the, the indices. So you have multiple flawed data, you know, systemically going through the system. And so that's really a problem. But again, this this um, we're making progress on this. It just takes time. And so until we have some standard data from corporates, it's, it's tricky to put these um, kind of corporate ratings and rankings and products in place.
1: Or just for those of us who aren't familiar, can you give us an example or two of just like what is flawed data look like? I mean, just like what's what's out there that is data that we might have thought is data that you would characterize as flawed data that maybe we, we shouldn't have been using or relying on?
2: Well, I'll give you a macro piece. So everyone wants to talk about anything related to the climate, right? So, you know, whether it's carbon emissions or, you know, uh, ocean waste or whatever it is. So people would ask, OK, do you as a company report to the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project? And one company could answer with all kinds of details on their emissions and their progress and their, you know, all their standards for you know how they're using energy. And so, yeah, they report to the CDP. And another company can look at the CDP, you know, questionnaire. You know, the first question is, do you report to the CDP? And their answer is yes. And that's it, right? And meanwhile, both those companies report to CDP. And so that could be, you know, just that yes could be in a, you know, in, in a- and So if
1: some- like, oh. If someone's built a ESG ETF that determines your carbon responsibility, Iron has determined that you know the people who report to the CDP are you get a check in that box for for being higher weighted on their ESG carbon factor. It's like, oh, okay. The general index looked at do they disclose? The answer is yes, they get a point. But the drill down is like, yeah, but these are drastically different disclosures because one company's actually really doing the hustle work on it, and the other one is basically just said yes and isn't really doing much beyond that.
2: Exactly. So you see, this is a big difference, right? And so we're not yet at a place where, you know, again, companies report in a way that is standardized and comparable and projectable and decision useful. So we're not there yet.
1: What do you look at to set these factors in the first place? I mean, did, like, does this mean you have to decide for yourself which ESG factors you think are actually useful and valid and reliable in the first place? And that becomes part of the exercise.
2: Yes. I mean, so at Pathstone, we are analyzing managers all day long. So that's what we do. And part of our analysis of every manager relates to you know, how they incorporate material ESG factors. We want to understand their thought process, all right? So we do a lot more than, you know, just look at their ratings and rankings from sustainability and, you know, from sustainability analytics and MSCI. We are asking questions of these asset managers to really understand how they think, And are they doing what they say they're going to do? And by the way, that's why we do the kind of thematic research that we do on whether it's quantum computing or circular economy, you know, or, or, you know, social justice, because when we ask them questions, like I mentioned with human, human trafficking for an airline company, quantum computing actually also for an airline company, when we ask them questions For food companies, uh, restaurant companies, we're going to want to ask them questions about safety, right? And then we want to see how they answer those questions. And if they don't kind of get it, or they can't respond in such a way that shows that they are really thinking about material ESG factors, well, that's problematic. You know, that might be a manager that we're not going to use. So it really is a matter of going deeper. Also at Pathstone, we have a, a proprietary impact access framework, right? So we look at our clients' portfolios to try to get a sense of where their tilts are in the various kind of sustainable development goal uh, frameworks. So is your portfolio tilted towards water is your tor- portfolio tilted towards gender equity we can look at the asset managers at the you know the strategies that they own and start to understand and then we can kind of construct portfolios to get to where they want to be in terms of their
1: focus so can you can you explain that process to mm-hmm. us more i mean just like what is that an analysis with a tool and piece of software to like x-ray their portfolio on mm-hmm. on on an ESG factor basis, like what exactly are you guys doing mm-hmm. and, and how do you how do you actually get there to do it?
2: So we we think of kind of the best way to have impact, we kind of looked for a, a single common denominator among these 17 UN sustainable de- development goals. Right. So the SDGs, which if you don't know, it's a, a big framework that the UN put in place for both I mean, investors and corporates. It's aspirational, right? Like no hunger, no poverty, clean air. And, and so it's aspirational. But in any case, these 17 goals are a really interesting starting point. And we were looking at these 17 goals and we're like, OK, what is the single common denominator to achieve these goals? and we argue that it really is access right and so for example uh, one of the goals number 5 is women's economic empowerment effectively so how do we how do we offer that to a client who really wants to invest for that well access is in our view just pivotal right we need to get women access to education, to water, to broadband, to capital, to healthcare—you need access to a bunch of other sustainable development goals to get to number five. So we created basically a—it's a, a, a matrix—to say, okay, your portfolio is skewed towards you know gender equity, which is what you want, which is great but we created these access indicators, you know, for each one of the goals, what do you need to get to that? Which other ones? So we have this access framework, and then we take that down to the level of, you know, managers, we take that down to the level of stocks, and we can see what a client is is leaning towards in terms of the portfolio. And so that access impact framework is our kind of you know, it's built on some of the ESG data, but it goes, it goes a lot further to understand managers and then to understand client portfolios. We create a, a heat map to, to show visually where our clients are, are, are kind of leaning. So, again, everyone has to have their own way. I happen to think ours is really unique and really powerful. And again, you really have to understand impact to be able to do it. By the way, the SEC is now looking at RIAs, right? And to see, like, are you doing, you know, are you just kind of saying, oh, yeah, we do sustainability or are you really doing it? And most importantly, as with the SEC, are you doing what you say you're doing, right? And so we kind of go above and beyond.
1: So, talk to us a little bit more about just how all of this is actually done and expressed in 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 Pathstone, in your in your advisory firm. Because I've I've been, I mean, I'm struck just hearing the discussion overall that you relative to. I guess I'll just call it like, tr- traditional advisor investing. I mean, I I do hear kind of more analysis, more more work, probably requires more scale. There's there's more effort involved. Right. I mean, just kind of by its nature, if if you're gonna look at more factors and evaluate on more measurability outcomes, there's it's it's gonna take more to do this analysis and work in the first place. So how like how is this actually done and implemented at, at pastone I mean, like, what is your ESG offering to clients, and and how do you actually implement that?
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's things that we've talked about. It is an understanding of uh, manager selection, right? So ESG analysis is included in every one of our manager diligence discussions. That's one. Two, we do this thematic research. That allows us to push managers harder and it allows us to better align our clients' uh, values and objectives.
1: Can you you give me an example of like what one of your thematic research projects would be? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, sure. I mean, the quantum computing is an example, right? That's one example. We do, we've done pieces on racial equity and how do you invest for, for racial equity? And we think a lot about understanding the genesis the structural issues around how we got to where we are. So we know that African-Americans from, you know, the beginning of, you know, the U.S. did not have access to education, did not have access to uh, capital, you know, did not have access to the to housing, the ability to build wealth in a family, a generational wealth just wasn't there, right? So you need to invest in kind of the infrastructure that makes up for that right so cdfis and understanding banks that do community lending there's ways to invest in in writing a historical wrong right and so we do pieces on that we've done pieces on lgbtq rights and equality we've done pieces on circular economy on the intersection between health and climate usually important one
1: and, so we do and that. so the I- the idea of these is like you you do a deep dive on one of these i guess to to understand the issues and factors yourselves At at an even greater level. And then that turns into questions that you're then bringing back to managers when you're doing due diligence evaluation of managers to say, like, you know, we've been doing our research and finding these factors are really drivers for quantum and computing. So, you know, talk to us about how you're incorporating the, you know, long-term impact of quantum computing into your portfolios. And- yeah.
2: How do you see that, you know? And so, yeah, that's, the, so for us, again, it's the deeper ESG analysis, adjustments to the ratings and rankings and such that are out there, you know, incorporated, incorporating our thematic research, proprietary measurement framework, and field building and education. We do a lot of that, you know. All of our research we put out there into the public domain. You know, that's purposeful. You know, we are building the field. Again, with our clients, we're doing, you know, education all the time. We bring experts to help understand issues, everything from the Ukraine to, you know, water scarcity. So, uh, yes, to answer your question, it's a lot of work. But we think it's a it's a unique offering and it helps us, you know, win business.
1: So in practice, like do just do all clients that invest with the firm get invested through an ESG framework? I mean, like, does it is it synonymous to say if I'm a pastone client, I'm investing under this ESG framework, or is that simply like one of the investment options that you've got and clients that want to go other directions have other other portfolios or models available?
2: Well, again, we have everything. You, you know, we're we're quite large, so we manage thirty five billion in um, in client assets, and so we're going to have everything out there. We're going to serve everyone. So, no, not every client is intentional about having a um, you know a sustainable portfolio, as we say. But what I will tell you is probably if you look at it, about ninety plus percent of our clients do happen to have some strategies in there that are considered sustainable simply because those strategies have outperformed dramatically they're good they're good strategies and great managers so no i definitely would not say that we're all sustainable that said again if it's a great strategy does it matter if it's sustainable or not if someone cares
1: so, how does this get invested with, within the firm? Because I, I, so I guess what I'm, I'm wondering at, at the end of the day, are you actually going all the way down to the point of building, like building the entire portfolio, stock by stock, along the different factors that you're evaluating after going through your ESG analysis, or ultimately, are you focused on finding managers that do this, and you're And and your primary focus is the manager search and selection and due diligence process.
2: We have plenty of uh, clients that own individual stocks, but really it's it's not as much of our remit. We focus, I mean, we have a very large research department that focuses on diligence all day long, right? So it really is manager strategies that we are focused on.
1: I guess I'm I'm just wondering like given the size and the and the resource the firm has like why why manager search and diligence as opposed to being the manager hiring the manager bring the managers in trying trying to do that in house just for, for a firm at at your size of 35 billion how do you think about using third-party managers versus trying trying to be the managers internally yourself? Yeah,
2: I mean it's a different it's a different skill set. It's a different function. Again, coming from you know a sell side investment bank, we had about six hundred publishing analysts at my former firm, right? So getting stock specific, you know, I I love it. I'm still a stockbroker by heritage, but it really is a different function, a different analysis. So that's just how the business, it, you know, evolves. Again, it, it actually is, you know, argue, arguably it's it's a good way to consolidate kind of expertise, right? So our expertise is analyzing the managers and then thinking about how they do stock selection. Again, it's a, it's a resourcing issue and it's a skill set issue. So this is, I think... Not unusual for how wealth advisors are doing it. And what I would say is, again, coming from a really big firm with a giant research staff, it would be really hard on a single stock basis for even what is a large RIA to compete with the abilities of of, uh, the research staff of an investment bank,
1: And when you talk about finding managers, I guess, what what kind of managers are we talking about? I I think for a lot of advisors, manager is essentially like a, a manager of a mutual fund is for the most common way that we apply it. But there's, there's managers in mutual funds. There's there's managers in separately managed accounts. There's managers in more private and alternative investment structures. Like what what kinds of, of vehicles are does Pathstone use when you start implementing this? Like what what are the managers managing?
2: Mm-hmm. So really, I mean, when we go to meet a client, let's say it's a new client, we're going to talk about um, a high level investment policy statement, their IPS. Right. What do they want to accomplish? What is their risk appetite? What are their liquidity needs? You know, what's an appropriate, you know, long-term view? So, so this is an investment policy statement. What do they not, definitely not, want to invest in? What is their, you know, profitability goals? What are their, you know, social impact goals? So, the high level is the IPS. Then we come into uh, an asset allocation, you know, discussion, like what's pretty d- done kind of standard, right? So where should we be in the different types of asset classes, depending on liquidity and risk outcome, you know? And then we start talking about the managers, but in terms of those managers, we can go, you know, anywhere from a standard, you know, straight equity, you know, large cap mutual fund, right? To a much more esoteric, private, long, short, distressed credit, You know, hedge fund, right? You you can go anywhere. And by the way, you can go anywhere when it comes to ESG analysis, too. That's part of of all of it. Yeah, all the different classes from private equity and venture, real assets, real estate. We can, you know, go where it's appropriate for the specific client.
1: I guess I'm just wondering in practice, where does it tend to go i mean are are you heavily in in mutual funds in practice? are you like heavily in private equity and venture in in practice like just where do the dollars usually end out getting getting expressed when you when you go through this process with typical clients?
2: When it comes to a standard asset allocation, that, that's not going to be that different, right? So 60% equities, whatever, it's, it's pretty standard. When there's more wealth, and, and again, our clients on average are about $50 million or so. So when there's more wealth, you can go further out on the risk curve and you're probably going to see more private deals in there. So some private equity and some, some alternatives, some hedge funds, some uh, ventures. So there's going to be more there when it comes to privates, a standard portfolio of wealthy people might be, you know, 5% could go up to 10%, something like that. But again, it it depends. It's always so specific. I mean, you all know if you've met one family, you've met one family and it's all over the map.
1: And you had said, typical clients is 50 million dollars so you are you guys are very much working in that ultra high net worth family yeah. office mm-hmm. space in the first place yeah how challenging is it when clients with that level of dollars come in and just you're you're trying to implement them to these kinds of strategies and models in the first place so I'm, I'm I'm gonna guess not a lot of people are coming in like I have 50 million dollars and it's all in cash in a bank account so like you, you guys can just <laughs> invest it from scratch
2: so fun when that happens Happens. It's rare, but it does happen occasionally. You know, there well, might yeah, have, I guess someone, someone you know, had a liquidity
1: event and like the check just yeah. cleared, but
2: yeah, it's, it happens sometimes, and it's awesome <laughs> because we really do. I mean, Tapu Raza, you know, is great. You know, typically what happens though is they're coming in with a portfolio, and we're analyzing the portfolio and matching it up to you know, what's most appropriate for them. And you transition a portfolio over time. I mean, the tax implications are so critical. And then but sometimes their clients don't care about that. Also, let's just get it done, right? Let's, uh, let's decarbonize our portfolio. Let's get fossil fuel free, like right now, get it done. That's typically not how it is. It's typically more you know, a client wants that strategy of moving towards fossil fuel free. And it could take two or three years or even more to get that done in a tax-efficient way. Again, once again, I will tell you, it's all over the map.
1: What's the actual investment team structure to do this within Pathstone? Like just how, how many people are on this investment team or ESG investment team to, to make this happen?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I should say that it's not really an esg investment team i mean there are pockets of particular expertise you know my group that heritage cornerstone group has particular expertise cuz cornerstone was purpose built for impact right but but our team is spread around the whole firm and we do education and teachings all the time because we need everyone to be versed in ESG analysis and sustainable investing. So we are kind of a resource for the whole firm, as well as being our own advisory team, just like any other region, right? So we're the New York slash Colorado team. And then there's obviously the, you know, an LA team and a DC team, Boston team and such, but everyone in the firm, is learning more and more about sustainability. And then they bring us in if they need uh, deeper expertise with a client.
1: So from the from the Pathstone perspective, you know, you you had your own firm in the past that did this. You got you got merged into Pathstone is the larger firm. And so now you get to operate as kind of the the ESG team and the ESG knowledge base within a larger firm environment that's got other advisors, other, other clientele across the firm that may want to may want to leverage and tap into that.
2: Yeah so we, but but it's not just our team i mean there really was some heritage expertise so we have for the firm a fairly large impact committee which i chair and in that impact committee we have people from advisory from research you know from across the firm and so it's really the impact committee that's tasked with working for the whole firm, you know? And again, there's maybe some more expertise there, you know, there's more expertise. Some of the stuff that came from the heritage cornerstone, the research, the framework for impact, all that, you know, came to this much larger platform. This, this deal, this merger just made all kinds of sense for those who want to really scale impact because having this platform, you know, it's just so much more powerful and broad uh, than having a boutique.
1: So, describe for us a little bit more this impact. Com- committee. I mean, it's like, what do they what do they do? Like, dinner. so now you got, you have a big firm, so there's a lot of people, a lot of stuff yeah. going on. Like, I just, yeah. what is the actual impact committee? What what do they do?
2: So the committee itself, um, again, it's made up from people around the firm in different functions, and we have various subcommittees, including investment solutions, marketing, and education research and analysis and governance, whether it's family governance or corporate governance. So these these committees each are tasked with various things. Research committee obviously works on the, the thematics. The investment solutions team is mostly about when we do a thematic as an example, which managers you know make sense. What do we need from research? The marketing committee its you know, it's obvious it relates to field building and education. And then, of course, the governance committee, we do a lot of discussions with multi-generational families and that's a family governance issue. So that's what that committee works on. So it's, it's you know, it's pretty straightforward, actually, but it engages everyone. And at Pathstone, you know, we have a number of committees and, and it, you know, if you are engaged, in one of our committees if you are involved in it whether it's impact or you know diversity equity and inclusion it's a, it's a big deal you know it's we take this really seriously
1: so how, how many people are on an, on this committee in the first place
2: the impact committee has about 16 people
1: and and so are you like because I'm just trying to understand. I mean, is the committee literally like picking picking investment allocations and managers? Is that where the ultimate decisions get made about where dollars are going to go and how they're allocated, or the committee's like providing support work on that, but the decisions happening somewhere else?
2: Yeah, the, it's research that that focuses on you know manager selection. The committee is going to work with research you know, to figure out what we might need, for instance, let's say from advisory, it turns out we need more private equity solutions. You know, the committee is going to see that because there are advisors on the research committee. And then the committee reports back to the research organization. The thematic research committee or subcommittee is going to say, okay, we're going to do this piece on healthcare, whatever, you know, do we have solutions? What's the piece going to look like? And can we find solutions on the platform, or maybe we can't, and we need to do some more searching and analysis. So, yeah, so everyone's, uh, by the way, this is a relatively new structure, I have to admit, that I'm working on. So this is how it's supposed to work, and it's exciting.
1: So talk to us about your path personally in coming to this. Like when did you get started in this direction of ESG investing in the first place? Has this been something you were interested in from the very start or you came to it later? Like what was what was your pathway into ESG investing?
2: So ESG analysis again, it's it's just research. It's great research, right? It's going down Different avenues of inquiry that are ultimately going to be fundamentally important, right? Financially important. So I actually came to it um, sustainable investing, you know, very organically. You know, so I've been in the equity markets for years, and it's probably about, you know, 20 years ago, I I observed that, you know, this SRI thing seemed really ideological and divisive and political and I was like, well that's that's not really how it should be now as a as a again as a director of research and investment research, like I'm thinking well this stuff needs to be treated as an enhanced analytical approach and as pragmatism because it's real And so as I more and more learned how material ESG factors were, I started realizing that I myself am a sustainable investor. I just didn't know it. I didn't have the language. So anyway, um, what I needed to do is, as I was the chair of this investment review committee, when analysts and strategists would come to the committee to get approval for an upgrade or downgrade or whatever, I would start to ask different questions, questions along the lines of sustainability around issues of governance, around risks and, you know, societal impact, around costs of, let's say, energy consumption, right? So I started asking these different questions. And again, I became more and more certain, really certain, that ESG factor analysis was critical to understanding, you know, outcomes for stocks. And so I had to be kind of subversive, because again, that heritage of you know, socially responsible investing as being really ideological and not financially grounded. I had to avoid that, right? So I just spoke in terms of governance. And among the E and the S and the G, that governance is first among equals. You know, it really is. If you don't analyze environmental and social issues as a company, well, you're not well governed, period. So again, pragmatically, I came to a place where this analysis is a must-have. It's just investing. I don't have to use the word sustainability. I'm not going to be perceived as, you know, a tree hugger, and I'm just going to do this kind of work. And in the world at that time, in the world of what was called socially responsible investing, and by the way, I say what was called and what still is called, the word responsible Just troubles me because it implies that, you know, any other kind of investing is irresponsible. And I don't I don't believe that. Right. So I didn't want it to be, you know, ideological and judgmental and stuff. But anyway, I I became more and more certain that this is, you know, how it needs to be for Wall Street, for capitalism. And so I started going outside UBS a little bit more, and I started working with the the UN and the Clinton Global Initiative and the World Economic Forum. And so I went out there as a mainstream Wall Street, you know, executive. And I think that there was a differentiation between me and, you know, a lot of the, the heritage SRI people. And so I became you know, more and more convinced that I had this right. I became more and more convinced that this was, frankly, a huge market opportunity. I'm a business person, right? And so that's when I decided to found my own firm that was, again, a purpose-built impact investment advisor. And then, so we managed about a billion five, and then last year, after about seven years uh, in business... I got to know Pathstone and it's just, it made so much sense from a sensibility standpoint, you know, and a fit to a financial standpoint. If my whole thing was to scale impact, you know, at a billion five, you know, I did some good work, but at 35 billion, our voice is, you know, dramatically larger. So that's kind of the the story. Very pragmatic. You know, I happen to believe and my values happen to believe happen to be what we
1: are doing. So I'd love to hear more about the transition from spending a lot of years in a large Wall Street firm. I think you said you were you were building at UBS, to making the switch to going like going out on your own and hanging your own shingle, like for for having spent time so directly on 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 Wall Street, like that's a really big leap.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's scary as hell, <laughs> you know, no net, no net. But also, you know, the freedom to do exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, granted, at UBS, I did pretty much what I wanted to do. <laughs> but, but you know, so I, I did have a lot of latitude, but not, you know, not, not like you do when you have your own company. But it is really scary, you know. Being an entrepreneur, a, a lot of people here know, is like, jumping out of a plane and building the parachute on the way down. It is really scary. And you're betting kind of everything, right? But when you are as certain as you can be that you've got this right, you know, you go do it. And so, yeah, it was really scary, but but really exciting. And happily, like, you know, I got to go in the direction I wanted to go. And happily, also the good thing is like with UBS, I am very, very proud of the legacy You know, I, I left there. And so again, back to the idea of field building for sustainable and impact investing. I feel really, really good about what, what we've done. I feel really, really good of where we're going here uh, with Pathstone. But yeah, scary as hell
1: was there a moment where you just realized like I I can't stay at UBS I'm going to have to go do this scary thing on my own
2: <laughs> No I mean there's not a particular moment it's when I guess you you um you kind of lose patience for not moving as quickly as you want to move I mean that's that's probably I think the, the genesis of a lot of entrepreneurs you kind of lose patience because you know what has to get done. But no, it wasn't a particular inflection point.
1: And so how did you take the leap and and get started?
2: Well, I was fortunate in that, you know, my former co- UBS was comfortable with my founding the firm from my office there, which was very nice. So there was a feeling like, yeah, Erica is doing what she needs to do. And so it was a, it was positive. And so the relationships were
1: very like good. that's a little unusual that that tends to be harder for people transitioning out of a firm. I guess the distinction, correct me if I'm wrong, but at UBS, you weren't necessarily in the going out and getting clients side of the business. You were in the research side of the business. So you were kind of crossing the divide from research to advisory Mm -hmm. as opposed to being an advisor and trying to leave and Start exactly. your own advisory outside, which
2: Yeah, or an executive at the investment bank where they, you know, escort you out the door. It was even more of a transition. So not only was I transitioning from, you know, research to an advisory business, I was transferring from the investment banking research part to the wealth management advisory part. So it was it was a whole different kind of business model that it was a, a system-based business model that I was taking. Yeah. So so UBS was very gracious about it. That doesn't mean it wasn't scary as hell because it was you know, my capital that I started the company with.
1: So what did you do when you got started? I mean, was it you hang a shingle like solo out of the gate? Did you have initial team? Were there any like clients that I guess, I was going to say came with, but you didn't? Really have clients no. directly there? Like, were there were their launch clients? Just how do you?
2: Yes, yeah, so my it mother
1: going on day one. It's like, uh, oh, I don't work at UBS mother, anymore. Uh,
2: my money, my mother's money. Let me tell you something. The first like ninety days out of the gate when we got SEC approval, I had to get twenty five million in the door in ninety days to make sure that it was good with that SEC approval. It was the worst ninety days. It was horrible.
1: All right, because so this this was before SEC had lifted the limits up to uh-huh. up to a hundred million so 25 million was SEC registration but mm-hmm. if you were starting from scratch they gave you a brief window to get over the threshold right.
2: and we had no initial you know investors right so it was so really just how do you
1: find to- 25 million dollars in 90 days I mean there are advisors <laughs> who spend 10 years trying to get to 25 <laughs> million of AUM
2: I had some good relationships so we managed to get it done you know my mom was nervous at first because you know she thought I was gonna Put her money in my desk drawer and I explained that there's a big firm called Pershing. <laughs> that's going to be, the money going to be in that vault. You know, again, it was, it was really scary and no question. So I had about four people, none from, from my former firm, none from UBS that we're going to be starting off with me. And we started, you know, it takes a while to do what you need to do to start an advisory firm, obviously. So we started by publishing research and, you know, that was my heritage. So we put out a monthly research report and we also did some corporate consulting because again, I had that investment bank background. So I had some corporate relationships. And so that, you know, the corporate, and the research helped finance the company, along with my capital, until we were able to start the advisory business.
1: So, publishing research wasn't wasn't just a like we're you know, were like we're we're putting out research white papers as a way to prospect for business. You were literally like selling research to institutional buyers that were yep. buying yep. research on ESG.
2: Yep. So we had a newsletter, the Cornerstone Journal of Sustainable Finance and Banking. And we put our newsletter out every month, which we charged for. We did some again bespoke research for some institutions on a few different themes. And we did some corporate consulting. And so that's that's was helping us, you know, continue until we got the advisory license.
1: And so I guess the good news was because you were leading research where you'd been previously, there were also people that were familiar with your research work. So when you <laughs> yes. when you said, I'm going out on my own and we're starting up a new research offering like Mm -hmm. there were people that knew you and trusted your work and said okay we'll 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 pay for erica's new thing
2: yeah yeah we actually it's kind of crazy we actually got some checks for the journal of sustainable finance and banking before we had ever published it and my very first client she's still a good friend she was on the corporate side now she's an asset manager but i said you know i said Paula, I don't even have anything to show you. She's like, I don't care. If it's coming from you, it's gonna be good. <laughs> so she was the very first client.
1: So what do you, what do you charge for that kind of research?
2: Mm, it depends. So we had a, you know, a regular, you know, a couple thousand dollars for the, the newsletter a year, but more importantly some of the bespoke research it it depended. It was by
1: project. Okay. So like multi thousand dollar a year research paper times a bunch of people who sign up. Like this uh, was this actually a material financial driver for you early on? Yeah, it
2: absolutely was. And it was very few projects but larger tickets. Okay. And we also did some again some corporate consulting uh, because of the corporate relationships I had, and that was large tickets.
1: Interesting. So, so kind of getting paid as an independent research publisher and independent research consultant was part of the revenue bridge for you mm-hmm. while you went uh, uh, until or as you got clients to get the the actual AUM side of the exactly. advisory business going.
2: Yep, exactly.
1: So what surprised you the most about going out and trying to build your own advisory business?
2: Oh, it's just how hard it is. And it's so hard because on the one hand, you want to be, you know, a trusted advisor. That that's the key, right? But on the other hand, you, you do have to be selling. And especially with, with wealthy and very wealthy families, selling per se, is just, they'll run in the other direction. It's not appealing.
1: Be- because they have so much yeah, so much money, people are coming at them so continuously. They just, yeah. they're, they, they tend to be more sensitive to it and they tend to run more quickly.
2: Yes, yes. Another thing that I found difficult is that I was kind of always in a rush, you know, because, a, you know, a rush to get clients, a rush to drive revenues. And being in a rush is bad it's bad for trust it's bad for your physical health it's bad for business and so you know that you can you can actually move kind of more quickly in terms of your business and your objectives if you actually move more slowly i know that that sounds like you know an oxymoron there but but i mean it like now i just feel i am so much more confident and certain of the value that we add, and the job that we do. And, um, you know, with confidence, you start rushing less, you know, and, and with knowing that you really have a a unique selling proposition, you can sell less. And I think those things are more um, appealing and sustainable.
1: Was that something like, were were you able to get to the point of moving more slowly at at the time, or is that uh like That's now? Just, now yeah. looking back, I I see that might have been helpful, but I was still caught in the rush at the time. Yes,
2: yes. This is this is newer that I I feel like I can move more quickly if I move more slowly.
1: So what was the what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh
2: God! Well, I don't know if you count that ninety days when I have to find twenty five million dollars. That was pretty low. When I doing a capital raise. In you know, the beginning of the pandemic, um, I was doing a raise to finance the company's growth. And that that you're just looking around, you're like, oh, my God, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in, you know, so we're in that health crisis. We're in a crisis of confidence with our government. We're in a climate crisis. We're in a gun crisis. We're in a racial crisis. And I'm trying to raise money. So that that's kind of a bummer. Well, but, you know, we got through it and uh, it, it takes a lot of heart and soul to be able to do it.
1: So what, what were you raising capital for in 2020?
2: That was, you know, basically to, to grow, to hire, to make sure that we could have the flexibility to do the vision that we wanted to do, you know. And ultimately, that's what led to my meeting, Pathstone. And it's as if it was meant to be.
1: Interesting. So I guess just relative to advisory firms, we don't see a lot of firms that raise capital for their internal growth. I mean, we see some that raise capital because they want to get dollars to acquire other firms. Mm -hmm. So I I guess, what was the focus of raising capital for you? Like what was going on that it felt necessary and what were you actually looking to do with the dollars? Well,
2: you have to remember we were not we're an advisory firm, but not just an advisory firm, right? So we are, we were in, in the midst of, you know, publishing research, creating our unique framework, building the field. So, you know, we had big aspirations. We have big aspirations, but that's expensive, especially publishing research, and and again, and growing the field, we wanted to uh, really finance the access impact framework to tech enable it. That was really, really important. And we still are going to do that here with much more capability. So it's, you know, multiple reasons.
1: So as you look back, like, what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from hmm. 10 years ago when you were... St- still at UBS, but gaining gaining some momentum and interest in going going further in this direction.
2: You know, I, I guess the time uh, the time it would take to do everything everything takes two or three times as long as you might like. Everything costs two or three times as much as you might think. But it's um it's the time probably. Uh, you know, I wish I knew more about how long stuff takes. That's probably the the biggest thing.
1: And would you've done something differently with that? Like what would have what would have changed if you'd known?
2: You know, I'm not actually sure. I am very fortunate uh, generally in my life. I have very few regrets because you know, when it comes to making decisions, all day long what we do is make decisions with imperfect information, right? And I am good at saying, "Okay, I know as much as I can know, so I might as well go and make that decision, right? So given that that's the case, I don't typically have regrets. And so I can't, you know, in terms of what I would have done differently, I'm not sure.
1: So what advice would you give younger or newer advisors looking to come into the industry today?
0: Hmm.
2: I guess the advice that I would give is make sure you know when you had a great day, why was it a great day? What were you doing? And then over the course of your career, aspire to do more of that. <laughs> Whatever you were doing when you had a great day, do more of that. And that, that's the advice that I would give. You want I mean, frankly, I'm at a place, I know, and, and I, I wish I got there earlier, where I'm going to be damned if I don't have some fun. Especially now. Yeah, I know, you know, I I know what I'm really good at. I know what I don't love. And I want to do more of the former.
1: And so how do you define that for yourself now? Like, what is your, I had a great day and why?
2: (laughs) Well, again, what I like to do, I love doing presentations. So I love, you know, speaking and talking and interviewing like this. I mean, I enjoy real conversations and I believe you can do real conversations in a room of a thousand people. I happen to enjoy it. And I think that, you know, one of the keys to that is to make it kind of intimate. Right. And so I'm very transparent on stuff. So if I've had a day where let's say I have a a prospective client meeting in the morning with a client that, you know, is semi-well-versed on sustainability, I love that, a new prospect meeting. And if I had a client meeting, prospect meeting, and then I did some kind of presentation, and then I worked on some research that we're working on, you know, so I could learn about whether it's quantum computing or, you know, the health, you know, the climate determinants of health, whatever it is, learning. And so to me, that's a great day, especially if we win the client. So, but that's a great day.
1: So what comes next for you? What are you working on Next.
2: You know I'm I'm very fortunate. I'm in a place right now. I I have the best job, you know. I have a great job at a great firm and I am having more and more of the best days, you know. And um and again I love that I can really make a big impact, move fast and still move slow. And so I feel very fortunate honestly on the work life balance thing. You know, I still want to do a better job with that. I have a wife and three children and uh, not not young children anymore. But, you know, work-life balance would be, uh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there.
1: So what what throws you off from work-life balance when you're otherwise feeling pretty good about where the the business and career (laughs) are?
2: When there's a lot of what I love, <laughs> it's just, you know, there are days when we've got a bunch of clients and advisory work and some pitches and, you know, speeches and, rec- I mean, it, when it just, it, it gets to, it can get, you know, like too much. And so that, that, you know, loses the work life balance a little bit, but that's a high class problem. And that, you know, with thought, we can re- resolve it. When I look at my calendar, you know, and I see no breaks in between, you know, 12 meetings, that's not cool. And so I stop and I remind myself, let me at least build some breaks in here so I can get back to
1: it. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is even the word success means different things to different people, sometimes different things to us, and, and we go through the stages of our own lives. So as, as someone who's, you know, objectively built a very successful business and career around this, how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: You know, at, at this point, you know, what's cool is I kind of, you know, a lot of us are, you know, insecure and we want to show how great we are and successful and everything else. I kind of did that, you know, I feel like at this point, I don't have anything to prove, you know, to anyone. And so to me, you know, I think finally I feel Successful. I got nothing to prove. I really want to be part of, you know, building a great, you know, enterprise and, and helping people and helping the environment. And so I guess I define success as maybe contentment, you know, you know, I don't, I don't strive to happiness, right? Happy is a, is a, a moment in time. And I've got plenty of those and sadness too moments, But overall, being content, to me, that is success.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Erica, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
0: It's truly a pleasure, Michael.
1: Likewise. Thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?